Good morning. Um, I want to start off this morning um, with uh, just kind of a, a recap um, of sorts. I hope you had a chance last week to read the bulletin note, um, the lengthy bulletin note uh, that I had in there um, about Revelation and um, the apocalyptic language that's found in Revelation and um, how we can better understand these writings and how they apply to us today and, of course, how they apply to the original audience of the letter. Um, this week our reading was from chapters 10 through 16, and our reading for this week uh, is the rest of Revelation, 17 through 22. Um, Dave uh, will be bringing a lesson to you all next week for that, as we'll be out of town. Um, Revelation, of course, contains a lot of figurative and apocalyptic language, and that is definitely the case um, within our reading this week in chapters 10 through 16. And if you read through them, I hope you did, um, you were probably left scratching your head at a lot of the things that were going on in this. I could probably preach an entire year on the book of Revelation just so that we could better understand some of this figurative language that's in there. And through my studies... Um, over the past couple of weeks reading through Revelation, um, it's, it's been refreshing to kind of come back to it, um, because this is often a book that we don't really read, or we don't really study because I don't understand it, I don't get it, right? And a lot of study Bibles, too, today don't really touch on the meanings of Revelation, mainly because a lot of them come from a denominational background, and there's a lot of misleading teachings in that. We're going to talk about some of the misleading teachings that are uh, originate from chapter 14 of Revelation today, but we're also going to look at the really one of the major themes of Revelation is the fact that the bad guys lose and the good guys win in the end. That's really the overarching theme of Revelation. But of course, there's suffering that's going to come with that. That's part of it. Revelation chapter 13 ends with a somber and chilling picture of what the first century Christians were up against. And as I mentioned last week, Christianity was outlawed by the Roman Empire. It was illegal to even be a Christian. It was illegal for the Roman citizens to even engage in business with Christians who refused to worship uh, Domitian, who was the emperor. There was actually a government organization whose sole duty to the empire was to enforce emperor worship. That was their job. Any Christian who was caught refusing to worship the emperor were being persecuted, many of them to the point of death. God has forewarned his children what they are soon to be up against. And now, starting in chapter 13, he's going to give them some encouragement. And so while we look at the hope that God gave them, let's keep in mind that it is the success of these Christians and other persecuted Christians from this time to where we are now, where we find our light. They kept the light of God shining through the ages. Even these Christians who were persecuted to the point of death in the very early stages of Christianity, they persevered and they, uh, and they continued on, held fast to the faith. God promised us that his kingdom would stand forever in Luke chapter 1, verse 33. It, well, it always was and is will be, and will be the responsibility of Christians to remain faithful and to continue building the kingdom. 
Now, at this time of year, so many people are turning their attention to the birth of Christ. Let us remember the reason that Jesus left the glory of heaven to come to earth, to become a man and bring salvation to all who would believe in him as the Son of God. It is the faithful in him who believe in Christ that obey his commands and hold fast to that faith until the end so that they may gain the crown of life. We read that in Revelation. And Revelation solidifies that that hope that we have of eternity. We have hope because Jesus came. We have hope because Jesus sacrificed himself as the once for all sacrifice to atone, to atone for sins. We have hope because he lives and reigns forever. It is because of that hope that we should stand strong for his kingdom and do our best to grow it and see her thrive. So let's look at Revelation chapter 14 this morning and see the glorious victory that we have in Christ and the victory of the redeemed. Verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Revelation chapter 14 opens up with the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now I'm going to break down the figurative language here so we can kind of understand where all of this is pointing us to. The Lamb is symbolic, of course, for Jesus. John chapter 1, 29, first to him is the Lamb, Revelation 5, 6 as well. And Mount Zion is used in the scriptures to represent several things. It actually changes in what it represents as you go through Scripture. In the Old Testament, Mount Zion uh, was used to represent physical Jerusalem. In the New Testament, uh, Mount Zion and and, uh, even New Jerusalem came to represent the church. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 23 reflects this. There, uh, the Hebrew writer... um, says in verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The Hebrew writer is referring to the church in that section. Now here in Revelation chapter 14, Mount Zion represents heaven, or the divine location at the right hand of the Father, where Jesus was. The Christians of this day knew that this couldn't mean physical Jerusalem because it had already been destroyed, along with the temple by the Romans. Now, notice the Lamb, Jesus, standing on Mount Zion. This represents victory. A, that he is standing, and B, that he is on Mount Zion. This is how... um, Mount Zion and victory was reflected throughout the Old Testament. And Hebrews 12, 22 again notes that Mount Zion is the location of the church of the living God, the immovable kingdom. The word of the Lord was said to go forth from Jerusalem, which is also Mount Zion. And so if the word of the Lord is to go out from Mount Zion, and Mount Zion is the church, guess what our job is? The word is supposed to go out from the church. Jesus, the champion of the word, the champion of the Christians, was seen looking down from the immovable, eternal, invincible Mount Zion. Again, here representing the heavenly headquarters 
of which Satan himself had attacked, but was defeated and thrown down. Standing with Jesus on Mount Zion was the 144,000 who had the Father's name written on their foreheads. This is referencing back to chapter 7, verse 3. There are several mentions of the 144,000 in this section. Now the number is figurative. This is not an exact number. It is figurative in nature, and here's how. The number 12 represented a complete nation. It represented a complete organization of the religion of the Hebrews. This is the number of the tribes of Israel, which as a whole represented their entire nation, which descended from Abraham. There were 12 tribes. There were 12 stones on the breastplate of the high priest in Exodus chapter 28, verse 21. At the dedication of the altar at the tabernacle, each tribe offered up their sacrifice once per day for 12 days. Then, when the altar was dedicated, there were 12 chargers of silver, 12 silver bowls, 12 spoons of gold, 12 bulls sacrificed along with 12 rams, 12 yearling sheep, and 12 goats. All this found in Numbers chapter 7. When the Israelites crossed over the Jordan River into the Promised Land, they carried 12 stones to build an altar, something that we looked at in our study of Joshua 4 last quarter. Uh, two quarters ago, actually. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 31, Elijah confronted the priest of Baal. He built an altar with 12 stones, according to the number of tribes of Israel. There are many more examples, but we don't have time for all of that this morning. The number 12 is a significant number, and it had a very significant religious meaning to the Hebrews. It represented completeness to their organized origin, uh, uh, religion. Twelve times itself is 144. Now you multiply that by a thousand, which is a multiple of ten, which represents a complete man, would therefore represent a religious assembly of complete Christians of vast proportions. And that's why this visual imagery of a large number of the redeemed is used. This large group of redeemed souls is further identified as we move further along in the chapter. And so we have the image of Jesus standing on an unconquerable position with a large number of the redeemed surrounding him. These souls have the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now this imagery is a direct contrast to those who bore the mark of the beast and identifies them as belonging to God and living under his protection. This language calls to mind the words of Jesus as quoted in John chapter 6, verse 27. On him God the Father has set his seal. Paul spoke of the sealing twice in his letter to the Ephesians in chapters 1 and 4. And so we see that the name of God written on the foreheads of the redeemed are, uh, are representative of the sealing or the marking of ownership that takes place when one becomes a child of God. And baptism. The number 144,000 is figurative, as is the physical markings on the forehead. Now let's look at verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing harps. John heard a voice from heaven. 
And of course, heaven would substantiate the Mount, that Mount Zion was the heavenly headquarters that we were talking about there in verse 1. The voice John heard and described for us in earthly terms, he says, was like many waters, great thunder, and harpers harping with their harps. Say that five times fast. John did not literally hear water. He did not literally hear thunder. He did not literally hear harps or harpers harping on their harps. The water probably represented soothing peace and tranquility. The thunder, volume, and the harpers, beauty and harmony. And we get an understanding of what that sound is in verse 3. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Note in verse 2, John describes the voice that he heard in the singular. And then in verse 3, he uses the word they, characterizing a plurality of singers. This is significant in the text to note that John described these singers as singing with one voice. It's, represented, uh, it's representative of absolute unity. And that's what every Christian is to strive for, and something that Christ and his apostles advocated for throughout their ministry and writings, is unity of the body. The song John heard was the unified, redeemed, singing with one voice, a song that only they could learn because no one else had the right to learn it or to partake in it. It is likely a song of praise and victory. Those who are not redeemed will not get to partake in the singing of that song. The four living creatures and the elders. This um, would be the same that were um, described in the throne scene of Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 11. Each creature in that section had eyes in the front and the back, signifying the all-seeing omniscience of God. And Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. One creature in Revelation chapter 4 was like a lion, which represented strength. Another is like a calf, which would represent endurance under the yoke of burden. Another has the face of a man, which would represent intellect. And the fourth is like an eagle, which represents deep vision and swiftness in the execution of judgment. These creatures are always before God, honoring Him and declaring His holiness and His eternal nature. Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The four creatures represents characters, the characteristics of God. The elders that are mentioned would represent great historic figures in the minds of the Christians of this day. Figures like Abraham, Moses, and Elijah. Great figures of faith designed to inspire hope and perseverance in the minds of those who are being oppressed. Now of significance in identifying them in Revelation chapter 4 verse 10 is the description of them casting their crowns before the throne. 
These elders enjoy kingly authority, but it is due entirely to their relationship to God. And all of their authority is derived from Him. Now, this is a beautiful symbolization of words in this verse. They are elders before the throne of God, but they owe it wholly to God, and they bow before the Almighty, their authority, which is represented in their crowns, that are removed and thrown at the Creator's feet. Humility, honor. When creation looks upon the throne, all eyes are on God. Now at the end of verse 3, we have the mention of the 144,000 again. And they are mentioned within this context. And John identifies them for us this time. Verse 3 says, They are the ones who had been redeemed from the earth. Those who have been purchased out of the earth are the redeemed. Those saved from death by the blood of Jesus. Let's look at verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. John devotes these final sentences to further identify the 144,000. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. As we talked about last week, the church, made up of the saints, was often referred to as a bride in their relationship to Jesus Christ. There is another sense of defilement for which John is uh, alluding to here within the imagery. He says, idolatry, characterizes it um, as adultery, but idolatry is often characterized in Scripture as committing spiritual adultery. In Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 37, we see God's condemnation for participating in the idolatrous worship of Molech, where part of the worship was the sacrifice of their children by fire to the pagan god. This idolatrous worship was characterized as adultery. Those to whom John was writing were warned not to bow down to the beast and worship him. Therefore, it is obvious that John's reference here to the virgins is representative to those who refuse to bow down and worship Domitian. John is making this vision more personal to the oppressed Christians as the imagery begins to narrow down to them specifically. These... These are they that follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Refusing to worship the emperor was a priority to those who would stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion. But it was by no means the only requirement. In addition to refusing to bow down to Him, the redeemed had to be faithful to Jesus and keep His commandments whatever they may be or wherever they may lead. These were purchased from among men to be the first fruits for God and the Lamb. Those who stand with Jesus were purchased from among sinful mankind. Now I want you to note the wording, the first fruits to God and the Lamb. The use of the word first fruits leaves no doubt that there will be more redeemed than those who are pictured within this imagery. This is in direct contradiction to many denominational doctrines which 
espoused the number of souls in heaven to literally be 144,000. If that number was to be literal, well, then there's some other things that they have to take literally as well. Because if you hold to the doctrine that there is literally only 144,000 who will be saved, then you also need to hold true to the other things that we find in verse 4. You see, the millennial doctrines hold to the belief in the physical return of Jesus, who is, to set, who is said to reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem. It is not in the scope of this study, of course, to examine all of the different beliefs regarding the misuse of 144,000 symbol. However, I do want to note the literal element of this imagery. And if you literalize 144,000, then you have to take the others from the accompanying text. Meaning that only men will be considered to be saved. Because the scripture says that they had never been defiled with women. In addition to them only being men, they were all virgins, according to the text. Meaning that no one who has ever been married would have any hope of being among those privileged to live in heaven. So therefore, if you hold to the belief that there will literally be 144,000 saved, then heaven would only be populated with 144,000 men who had never been married. No woman who ever existed would get to live there with God in heaven. Now, I hope you see that that's ridiculous. This teaching, this doctrine should be rejected on the basis of at least just being nonsense. Not to mention it going against the very nature of God and the very nature of Scripture as a whole. There is no limit to the damage that one can do with Scripture through being selectively literal with the text. The figure of the 144,000 is as as symbolic as the rest of the language uh, complementing it within the context. Let's look at verse 5. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. See, these five verses in Revelation chapter 14 are full of imagery, and it's no wonder. The letter has reached a significant turning point. The enemies of God and the Christians are not going to prevail. Their defeat is being announced before the struggle even begins. If such a document stating this and the facts surrounding it were stated plainly and were to fall into the hands of the enemy, it would result in a vast extermination of the already hated and persecuted Christians. Just the rumor of Jesus being born was enough to spell the demise for every male child two years old or less under the rule of Herod. Imagine what the result would be if the Roman emperor came into possession of and could understand a document that spelled out his ultimate defeat and the ultimate defeat of the empire. A paraphrase of what John was saying in chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, could be worded something like this. And I saw Jesus Christ, our champion, standing on an unconquerable position, surrounded by the redeemed, personally acquainted with him, his people. They were all singing a comforting and beautiful song of victory. The song they sang before the throne of God was a song no lost person could ever know or hope to sing. They never gave in to the Roman emperor or bowed down to worship him. 
They kept the commandments of Jesus to the end and were among the first to be eternally saved from among the men of the earth. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a wonderful thing to be a part of. As we gather with friends and family this holiday season, and for many of us as we reflect on the birth of Christ, let us again be mindful of this wonderful, victorious Lamb who stands on Mount Zion victorious. A victorious Lamb who was once slain, who was hung on a cross, and His blood shed for us. And after three days, He rose from the grave. And He stands forever at the right hand of God as our victorious Savior. If you sit here this morning and have obeyed His commands, you have, com- you have confessed Him as your Lord and Savior, you've been baptized for the remission of your sins, you've been sealed. You've gained that writing on your forehead. You are His, and He is yours. No gift under a tree could equal that. It is the gift that keeps on giving because of the victory and hope that we have in eternity. If you haven't repented, confessed, and been baptized for the remission of your sins, then would you like to receive that gift this morning? Won't you heed the words of the Savior and His apostles? Jesus said in Mark 16, verse 16, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, told the crowds to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And He is calling this morning. And as Paul recalled in recounting his conversion in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. Jesus came to this earth. He left the glory of heaven and took on flesh to become a man so that he could bleed and die on the cross to redeem us. If you want to look for a reason for the season, that's it. If we can assist you this morning in any way, won't you come now while we stand and sing?